Samuel chapter 3. First Samuel chapter 3, and if you are able uh, and where you can, would you please stand this morning as we uh, have Mr. Jordan Hicks uh, read to us out of God's Word. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was Pray. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for this text, Father. Such a, um, just a popular text, the one that we were all taught in Sunday school and taught growing up. And uh, it really is just a, a beautiful text to show us how you speak to us. Um, today, I, I pray that the emphasis, though, would, would be on your words and what they, they say to us. Uh, and that, Father, Jesus himself said that Scripture cannot be broken. Um, and that the Word of God is something that, that, that we have to carry with us. And so I pray today uh, that that would be real in our lives, that it would convict us. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, I pray that we would point everyone to Jesus and what He's done. Um, that because of, of His sacrifice for us, because of the gospel message, Father, now we, we who have trusted in Jesus obey because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So, so last week, we, we looked at Eli's sons, uh, and if you remember, we, we just saw how they dominated the scene, and, and the idea was that they were taking justice into their own hands, and so they were taking these sacrifices and things that were, were the people were, were the, that God had given the people so that they could have their relationship with him restored, uh, and they were abusing those things. And so as a result of that, God comes and says, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to kill your sons, Eli, because they're, they're trampling on my sacrifices. They're scorning my sacrifices. Uh, and yeah, Eli, you, you're going to die too, uh, and your whole family is going to be wiped out. They're not going to be priests anymore, uh, and I'm going to leave one more person in your family, but then that person is going to be removed, and they're just going to have to spend their life alone and look at what they lost, right? It was a really happy, chipper passage of Scripture. We loved it. But what we said was that when things seemed dark and hopeless, and in the midst of all this, in the background, what we saw was that Samuel was just quietly ministering before the Lord. Like, we didn't even notice it. It was just there, right in front of our faces. We just, we just missed it, and it was showing that Samuel's growing. 
that he's becoming more Christ-like, that, 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 that he's, 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 he's becoming uh, the man that Eli was supposed to be. And if, if you remember, we said last week that, that throughout the text, God was just whispering to us, hey, it's not all lost yet. Look at Samuel, pay attention, look here. And what we said was that ultimately, this text pointed us to Jesus, the true and faithful priest, the, the, the true priest who didn't come to take from us as Eli's sons did, but to come and give to us as he laid down his life so that sinners could be brought in. And that you and I now have confidence because we have a priest who always lives to intercede for us, a priest who stands in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, to, to start this, this week, I, I was thinking kind of, well, how am I going to open this? What are we going to talk about? And the thing that hit me was about uh, the things that we take for granted in life. Like, like we don't appreciate the, the goodness of certain things in our life until we lose them. Right? I mean, health, uh, our, our parents, uh, freedom, friendships. Uh, and I know over the last two years, our lives in the panhandle were, were fairly normal compared to the rest of the world, right? I, I got a buddy in California, feel bad for him, man. He, he's, he's, he's like, you guys are in school? I mean, they're going two years on, man. And, and just some of the crazy stuff that they're still dealing with. And our, our lives really weren't that way, but that there were still some things that, that we lost for a period of time. Uh, church was one of them. If you remember for a few months there, we, we lost that. And I don't want to see another stinking camera. Like, I don't even like that camera. I don't like you looking at me, camera. Right? I don't. I don't want to see an empty sanctuary. I remember doing the Easter sermon up here in 2020 at 9 o'clock at night, just me. It was awful. I even wore a jacket that night. Some of y'all were really impressed. I, well, never mind. I, never mind. Never mind. Filter. 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 Never mind. All right? But listen, one of the things, though, I, I remember, though, that I, that, that, well, one of the things that I realized I've taken for granted was just like friendships and then eating out. Eating out was a big thing. Now, I know a lot of us, we started eating at home, and that's a good thing. You need to eat at home. But there's something about getting together with good friends at a restaurant and eating, isn't there? And, and I took that for granted. And, and you guys know how I am about this, Rona, whatever, right? So I'm not saying I didn't eat out, but man, so many places were closed, and then they were open, and then they were closed, and then they were open that we just kind of fell out of the habit of doing all those things. And I think about it, I'm like, man, I used to eat lunch with people all the time. I used to eat with other pastors all the time, and then I've just kind of gotten out of the habit. And so recently, Mariah and I have been eating lunch together for, you know, the past 30 minutes that she gets. Uh, once a week on Wednesdays, we've been going to get burritos. It's been awesome. I was like, man, I forget I missed this. This is great. Um, it's a really good thing. Here's my point. As long as certain things are a part of normal life, we give little thought to their importance. And one good thing I think that's taken granted by some and it's unknown to others is the word of God. And I know we live in the Bible Belt, but I think we take it for granted more than probably just about any other place in America. We've grown up in church. We've grown up hearing sermons, etc., things like that. But, but many times, if, if you're honest, those sermons are just stories with a Bible verse sprinkled in here and there, aren't they? I know over the last year and a half or so, a lot of people that have kind of been joining our church, one of the things they've talked a lot about is the fact that we put a high importance on the Word of God, that, that we read it before church starts, that, that we spend a lot of time in large chunks of it, that we're all over it with cross-references and things like that. And, and I think the part of the reason that, 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 that our church has grown the way it has isn't because of the moron on the stage, right, or the really good-looking guy over here that, that helps me. It's, 
It's the centrality of God's word in, in, in the place that we, we give it, I think, at this church. Because honestly, I think people are starving for it. I think people in the panhandle are starving for it. And to not have the word of God, honestly, that ought to be a frightening thought to all of us. Listen to what the prophet Amos said in the 8th century to the people of Israel. In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And that's hard for us to sense the horror because that should have caused, that, that caused horror to the people that heard it. Because remember, what happens right after Amos makes this proclamation? God goes silent for 400 years. They don't hear a thing out of God until Jesus is birthed, until, until the angel appears to Zechariah. And so, so it ought to shock us because that, that's, that's, that's a horrific thing to think. Because we just don't appreciate, on the one hand, the goodness of God's word, and on the other, we don't appreciate our dependence for everything that comes from God's word. John Woodhouse puts it this way. He said, this may be because we've come to take the word of the Lord for granted, or because we've never known its goodness. And so today's text, listen, it shows us the power of God's word, and that's why I love it. And it shows us what happens when God's word arrives. Every one of us know this story, don't we? This, this was like up there, David and Goliath, like, you know, Samson, like this calling of Samuel. I remember doing this one as, as a kid. And, and, and it's funny because I'll just clear this up real quick. If you remember the story in, in children's church or whatever when you were a kid, they always showed Samuel as like a little boy, probably seven or eight. So I got to blow that up for you. He's probably 18, 19 at this point. Okay. He's a little older. He's a teenager. He, he's, he's a man at this point when this call comes, but it's still uh, one of my favorite, favorite sermons. So let's look at it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So this is the fifth time that we've had a, a brief statement about Samuel and his activities at Shiloh. And, and what I want you to see is that it's interesting how the author bookends this section. Look back at chapter 2, uh, verse 11, real quickly. It says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Do you see what the author's done there? So Samuel's still serving under Eli, but what does it say about Eli? Ain't the priest no more. It's gone. He, he's no longer being called the priest. And it says that the word of the Lord was, was rare in those days, that there was no frequent vision. And then immediately we're told that Eli's eyesight is growing dim. It's kind of cool what the author's doing there. There's a metaphor in that, that the, Lord of the, word, the, 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 the word of the Lord was rare and that there wasn't a frequent vision, but then Eli's eyesight has grown dim. So, so there's no frequent vision uh, because Eli's spiritual vision had gone dim. His physical condition was part of this. Yes, he couldn't see, but it was just a reflection of a spiritual reality. He couldn't see the light of the day, but he couldn't see the word of the Lord either. And, and we've already seen that. Remember, he accuses Hannah of being a worthless woman, of being a drunkard, but yet then here's his own sons 
who are doing all these awful things and he never accuses them of that. And so Eli's lying down in his place. Samuel's lying down in the temple of the Lord. That means that Samuel's in the inner place. He's close to where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. It would have been behind the the curtains with the angels, but he would have been lying somewhere in there. And again, the contrast is very, very intentional. John Woodhouse says that Israel had always needed a mediator to receive God's word, to offer sacrifice for their sins, and to represent them before God. And so here we see Israel's mediator. He's feeble and he's frail. And we're left to go, what's going to happen when Eli is gone? But we don't have to wonder very long, do we? It's like God's whispering again. He's like, hey, look at Samuel. Samuel's sleeping. And the lamp of God hadn't gone out yet. Now, these are the lamps uh, on the seven-branched lampstand. You can read about those in Exodus 25 if you want but they were to be kept burning before the Lord from evening till morning. So they would light it in the Lord's presence. They burned all night. And it was the priest's job to keep them things going. So it's not quite morning because the light hasn't gone out. But I want you to see the metaphor again. You see what he's doing? Here the darkness represented by God's silence and Eli's blindness is the good news that God's lamp hadn't gone out yet. That that God hadn't abandoned his people. The author's trying to say, hey, there's still hope. There's still hope. The light hasn't gone out yet. Pay attention. Look what I'm about to do. I know it's dark. I know it's scary. Everything's falling apart. But look, I'm not done. I'm not done. So so look at verse four. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am for you. You called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called Samuel again. Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lay down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose, went to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling to the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lay down, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and he lay down in his place. So he's laying down close to the ark where Eli should have been while Eli's in his room somewhere else in the tent complex. And then the Lord called Samuel. And listen to me, it's clear on this occasion that this came in an audible voice. He audibly called Samuel. I believe that, call me crazy, I don't care. He audibly called Samuel. Now he doesn't do that anymore. He speaks to us through his word. All right, if somebody's like, hey, God spoke to me, like it was really, really loud, and, eh, eh, all right, they're gonna hand you Kool-Aid decks, be careful. But he's lying there, he hears Samuel, and he jumps up, and he says, here I am, and he takes off running to Eli's chamber. And so he runs in there, and Eli's like a parent when the kids come in and it's too early. Like, man, what do you want? Go back to bed, it's too early. I didn't call you. So Eli goes back, and then he lays down, and the Lord calls again, and then what's Samuel do? He, he jumps, and he says, here I am. What's up? You called me. And he's like, boy, I didn't call you. Go lay back down. Quit waking me up. And verse 7 says that Samuel did not know the Lord, and the, Lord of the, wor- the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. Now, this isn't like Hophni and Phinehas. Remember it said that they didn't know the Lord? They, they didn't know the Lord at all. So, so this statement is just explaining. It doesn't blame right? Does that make sense? The, the statement is explaining, it's not blaming. So, so Hophni and Phinehas did not know the Lord, so they are to blame. 
Samuel didn't know the Lord or he didn't know his voice. It's just explaining what's happening here. Samuel knew the Lord. He was following the Lord. He was growing. He just didn't know his voice yet. Dale Davis says that Samuel had not yet had any direct experience with Yahweh. He had no prior practice at receiving Yahweh's word, so no wonder Yahweh's call baffled him. And so then he calls him a third time. Right? See the patience of God with us? Some of us were a little more hard-headed. God's so patient. Hey, hey, Byron, 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 right? Hey, I love you. He's being patient with him. He calls him a third time. Samuel runs to Eli and says, hey man, you called? And this time Eli knows it's the Lord, right? So his, his sight's growing dim spiritually, but he's not completely blind yet. And so he says, hey, go back, lay down. And if he calls again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel goes back and he lays down. And then look what happens in verse 10. And the Lord came and he stood calling out as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. I love verse 10. It says, the Lord came and stood. You don't need to speculate about, about, about his presence. He was there. One commentator says he was objectively and really present. He stood. The light hasn't gone out yet, guys. There's a servant. There's somebody who's listening And so the Lord says, listen, I'm about to do something that's going to cause the ears of everyone to tingle. That that word tingle just means like an ear buzzing sound. So if you've ever been to a concert, the bass is really loud, right? It'll buzz your ears or or loud music or maybe a a bee flies too close to you in the summer, you know, and you shake like that, you get all crazy. Like that's what it's talking about. It's just that feeling in your ears, that, that buzzing. And so what he's telling him is that, hey, listen, this is a message for all of Israel. God's on the move. And listen, Samuel, it's about to affect everybody. And so it's going to start here with Eli and his house. Everything the man of God said is about to come true. So so Eli and his sons, they kicked at my sacrifices. They acted like sin was no big deal. Now they're beyond the pale. There is no sacrifice left to atone for those guys. None. The New Testament, if you get to thinking, well, that's God of the Old Testament. Whoop, nope, New Testament says the same thing. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, he's just saying, we we claim to know the name of Christ, but we continue to sin without repenting, right? That's the key word there, without turning away. 
When we deliberately say, hey, I know that's wrong. I, I know that's a sin, but yet I'm just going to keep doing it. Remember Eli and Hoff, uh, Hophni and Phineas last week? Maybe the first few times they were stealing those sacrifices, they were like, oh, God, hey, I'm sorry. But eventually they just said, ah, man, who cares? And they just kept doing it to the point where finally God said, hey, you want it, go get it. And he gave them up. That's what he's saying right here. Is that, that if, if, if we're not careful and there's not a lifestyle of repentance, that eventually God will pr- give us up to pursue what we wanted all along. So God tells Samuel this, and then he, he lays there till in the morning, right? Now, let's go back. This was a kid's story. You know, I don't remember being told this part. Because you know he's scared to death. That's why he laid there, uh, I mean, till in the morning. He probably wasn't moving. I mean, not only was the Lord standing there, but that's a dark word to hear, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't think any of us want, like if God were to audibly speak to us, like I want rainbows and unicorns and God loves you and puppy dog tails and, you know, Care Bear Share. Uh, like, that's what I want. That's the message I want to go share. I don't want to go, yeah, hey, you're all going to die. But that's the message that he has to go and communicate. He gets death and no forgiveness. So I'm sure he's laying there scared to death going, oh man, how am I going to go tell this old man what God just told me? So verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of God. And so I I like Eli's words. He knows. He knows he's scared. You know, and you can see the affection that Eli has for for Samuel. He's raised him, right? So Eli, hey, hey, Samuel, my son, tell me everything. Tell me what he said. Don't hide anything. And if you do hide anything from me, what happens to me, may it happen to you too. Dale Davis has this great quote. It's it's lengthy. I didn't know if I was going to share it, but I think I'm going to. Listen to what he says. He says, there's always this tension in the word of God, and any authentic messenger of that word knows and lives in it. If a preacher, for example, never places you under the criticism of God's word, never tells you your sin, but only smothers you with comfort, you must wonder if he's a phony. If his preaching contains only the judgment note and seldom offers comfort and encouragement, one must ask if he actually cares for God's people. If one has a high regard both for the truth of God, even if it's judgment, and for the troubles of the church, he will retain the proper tension in the biblical word. He will both afflict, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's exactly what, what Samuel did, wasn't it? He had to tell him the truth. This is what God said. And so he tells him, and Eli has probably his finest moment in this book, doesn't he? He acknowledges and he accepts the rightness of God's judgment. Doesn't throw fit, doesn't kick, doesn't scream. He goes, yeah, hey, okay, yeah, may it be so. And then we're told that Samuel grew, and I love that line. You can underline it because I think it's so important that none of his words fell to the ground. 
Now that means God's words through Samuel, but still none of his words fell to the ground. I got, I got to digging on that a little bit. And that, that word, that phrase, uh, none of his words fell to the ground. In the Hebrew, it carries this sense of to rot or to fall to pieces. So, so it means that, that God's words will never rot, that they'll never fall to pieces. It means that God's word will never, ever pass away, that God's words never evaporate. They never fall apart. They never go. They're, they're always there. Martin Luther said the word of a human being is a little sound that goes out into the air and is gone, but the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. Indeed, it outweighs the heavens and the earth, and it will outlast them. Human words don't take up space. Human words pass away. God's word never does. And, and this is where I think we, we apply this text to our lives, all right? See, I think every generation, every generation tends to, to apply verse one to their particular time, don't they? You know you did it today, right? That, that the word of the Lord was rare, that there was no frequent vision, and immediately we're going, oh man, that's where we live right now. There's no word of the Lord. But listen, you can go all the way back to the Puritan days, and before the, 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 the Great Awakening, so many of the Puritans were saying the same thing, that the word was rare, that, that it wasn't in, the, in, in, the, in, their, in their country, it wasn't around. But, but I think it is fair for us to go, well, yeah, that, that kind of does describe where we're at right now. I mean, I think it is there. But the difference is, is there's no shortage of preachers. There's no shortage of churches. But there is a shortage of God's word. Man, we have flashy methods, right? We got pastors doing crazy stuff, right? Did y'all see the pastor spit in his hand and rubbed it all over his brother's face a couple weeks ago? Dude's a clown, right? And then all of a sudden he's like, man, I shouldn't have done that. No, probably not. That was a little degrading and it was really bad illustration. But you know what? It got likes. It's gimmicky. It's flashy. We have pastors who try to fit in with the culture and clearly, listen to me, it's not working for us right now. Tim Chester tells us in the crisis of our culture, we need God's word. Our hope will not come through legislation to defend Christianity. It will not come through gimmicky methods or trendy services. We will never complete, uh, compete with Hollywood for entertainment. Our hope is in the power of God's word. Whew. Apply that to our little town, right? So many times we want things to change and we're like, oh, if we can just get rid of this person or get rid of that person, right? Then everything's gonna change. Well, no, not until the word of God becomes prominent in our decision-making and how we live will things ever change. So let me give you two things about God's word this morning. One's bad and the other's good, right? So we're gonna comfort the uh, afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So let's afflict the comfortable first. So first, the bad. The bad news is scripture cannot be broken, which means scripture can't be resisted. The word of God will break you and break your life one way or the other. Jay read this at the beginning of the service, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Jesus said in John 10, 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. So it means that scripture can't be resisted. In the end, nobody can disobey God's word. Nobody. And I know you're thinking, well, Byron, people resist God's word all the time. I mean, I know I do. I resist God's word all the time. True, but in the end, nobody can disobey the word of God. Right? So, so let's just look at it this way. Take the command not to bear false witness. It, it just means don't lie. 
That's the word of God. That word doesn't fall to the ground. That word cannot be broken. If you take the command seriously and, and you obey it, then what will that command do? It ought to humble you. It ought to humble you because it will show you that you have to humble yourself in the presence of God and that guess what? You are a liar. And it's not because you tell lies every now and then, it's because you're a liar, right? We're all liars. Whether you tell big lies or little white lies or whether you just stretch the truth just a little bit or, or you move the facts around to fit your narrative. We all lie. We lie to others. But listen, you lie to yourself. We all lie to ourselves. Like we all think that we're something that we're not. Right? The older we get, the more we still go, I still got it, man. No, you don't. You don't. We all lie. We deceive ourselves. We lie to other people. Social media. Your life ain't that good? Come on. I know you. Made that joke a couple weeks ago. We know you gave your kids Benadryl before that picture. We know. <laughs> like they're all drooling. I do the same. It's cool. We lie. So if you let the word of God in, it's like a hammer. It doesn't fall to the ground and it will break us. It'll break our pride and then it turns us into honest people. People that can say, I can be honest with others and I can be honest with myself because I have nothing to hide because I know where I stand in front of God. But the alternative is, if you don't let the word of God break your pride, someday, and listen to me, it will break your life. Someday God's word will judge you. So go ahead, keep lying. Keep doing it. The more you do it, the less you know yourself. You ever thought about that? The more you lie about who you are and where you're at, the less you know who you are. We talked about that. Remember Mary's song, right? He, he sets the proud free in the imagination of their hearts. In other words, they become legends in their own mind. They just run free thinking there's something that they're not. Keep lying, you'll destroy your marriage. Keep lying, you'll destroy your relationships. When you lie, you destroy knowledge of yourself. So try and break the word of God and it will break you. You cannot escape the word of God. It's a great quote from Tim Keller. He says, either you let the word of God break your pride or it'll eventually break your life. You can't escape the word of God. I mean, isn't that what happened to Hophni and Phinehas? They knew God's word. They knew what they were supposed to be doing as priests. They knew they were supposed to be honoring these sacrifices. They knew they were supposed to be representing these people. They knew what a, what a huge thing it was to stand in the presence of a holy God, but they refused, and eventually God's word broke them. Instead of being broken and humble before the Lord, instead of realizing the weight of their responsibilities and allowing God's word to make them uh, loving and kind towards the people they served and cared for, they turned around and they became the opposite of that. They took from the people that they served. And God's word broke them. They would pay. So that's the bad news. God's word will not be broken. So either it breaks your pride or it breaks your life. Now here's the good news. The good news is that if you're willing to take the word of God in, you'll become an imperishable person. You'll become a person who can't fall to the ground. Now I didn't say you won't suffer. I didn't say that things won't get bad, right? Jesus never promised you easy. He just told you it was gonna be worth it. You take the word of God in, you'll become the kind of person that doesn't fall to the ground. Look at Jesus. Was Jesus like not obsessed with the word of God? He even said this in Matthew 5, 18, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot 
Not a tittle is what it says in the Hebrew will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Every place you see Jesus making a decision, being asked a question, every time you see Jesus in trouble, what do you see him doing? Quotes the scripture, doesn't he? When the devil's tempting him, what's he do? Quotes the scripture. Dying on the cross, being rejected by the people he loved, what does he do? He quotes the Bible. Peter takes out the sword. Right? Jesus is being arrested. Peter's going to stand up and going to fight for him. Right? He's a redneck. He's got it on him. He pulls it out, cuts the guy's ear off. And what does Jesus tell him? Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And listen to that last part. But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus is saying, listen, Pete, I'm only doing what the scripture told me. I'm already doing what God's word already says. I have to die. It's the only way. On the way to the cross, Jesus sees all these women crying, and what does he do? Look at Luke 23, 28. But turning to them, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. That's a direct quote from the prophet Zechariah. On the cross, what does Jesus do? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quote, Psalm 22. See, when you're in pain, when life isn't going the way you thought it would, when everything is unraveling, whatever comes to your mind and whatever you turn to and whatever comes out of you, those are the deepest things in your heart. That's what's there anyways. See, whatever you turn to in those moments is the center of who you are. So what was it for Jesus? Scripture. And because Jesus relied on Scripture, he became the type of person that never fell to the ground. See, if you take the word of God into your life and you build your life on that, then you'll become a person who can endure all this world throws at you. You may be limping, you may be just dragging yourself across the finish line, but you know what? You endured. What did the book of Revelation tell us over and over again? Hold fast, endure. Those who remain steadfast, those who remain faithful to the end, those are the ones that will receive the crown of life. So either you allow God's word to break your pride or it'll break your life. So that means that God's calling all of us in this room. So for some of you, he may be calling you to salvation today. As the gospel's been preached, he's calling you to trust in him, to understand that, listen, you cannot save yourself. You thinking that you can is pride. God hates pride. He will break pride. So either you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you allow him to be the one who saves you, and you have a place in his kingdom, or you remain in your pride, and you will have no place in his kingdom. So today, if that's you, trust Jesus. Don't leave here until you you talk to somebody about that. But but Christians, listen. God has particular callings for, for individuals. All of us in this room, if we're a believer, God has spoken to us. So, so Twitter's a dumpster fire, right? I can't quit it, but it's a dumpster fire. But every now and then, there's some nuggets on there. And I saw a great one this week. This pastor was talking about how too many Christians are educated beyond their level of obedience. Ooh, yeah, you can write that down. Too many Christians are educated beyond their level of obedience. And what he said is, there's all these people that, that and you know these people, they're like, oh, that church just isn't deep enough for me. I need to go somewhere else. Right, well, that, that church, I, I, I don't need to hear the gospel again. That pastor, all he does is talk about Jesus every week. Like, I need another Bible study on Revelation. Right, because I mean, Byron, he didn't do the timeline right, so I need to go somewhere else, you know, or, or they're gonna give it to me. Or, or, I, or, you know, Byron, you know, he doesn't talk about politics enough. I need to go somewhere where, you know, they talk a little bit, but tell me who to vote for, that kind of thing. 
And what he's getting at is this, is those people, it, it's not that they need something else, it's just that they don't want to do what they already know. <laughs> They're educated beyond their level of obedience. What God's called us to do is pretty darn plain, isn't it? To fill the great commission in the spirit of the great command. Now, that looks different for all of us in this room. So, so, so for some of you, God may be calling you to say, hey, I want you to take a particular interest in somebody's salvation. There's somebody in your life, whether it's a friend or a family, or you know they don't know Jesus, and yet you won't talk to them about it, or yet you won't bring it up because, well, you're afraid you'll disrupt the dinner table, whatever. And he's saying, hey, I want you to pray for that person. I want you to look for opportunities to minister and witness to that person. Maybe some of us, God's called us to, to leave and serve on the, ministry, uh, the mission field. And that scares us because we're like, well, I might take the kids away from grandparents. Yeah, what did Jesus say, right? Nobody comes after me without laying down everything. He may be calling some of us to enter the ministry vocationally, to, to serve as a volunteer in the church. Maybe he's calling us, and I think if you're a member here, to make financial sacrifices for kingdom causes, right? We're, we're about to, to, to get some crazy stuff going on in here. And he's called all of us, the pastor included, to make sacrifices in order that we can move in the direction he's called us to. Listen, whatever it is, could we be like Samuel and say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening? And here's what's great. We have more of a reason to say that than Samuel ever did. In Romans 8.32, what does he say? He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Right? We're on this side of the cross. We have Jesus. We've seen what he's done. And, and if he promised us all those things and he did those things for us, then what? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's not monetary here on this earth. That's, that's, that's the rewards in heaven. That's what we're called to. Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Righteousness, salvation. Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So if Jesus is the word of God and God's word can't be broken, then we can take all those things to the bank. We have something greater than Samuel did. We have Jesus and the reason we do all these things is 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation. That means a turning away of God's wrath, that he turned God's wrath from us for our sins. So brothers and sisters, the more clearly we realize God's love for us, the more clearly we see the gospel of what Jesus has done to send his son to die for our sins, the more we will love him. And the more we love him, the more we take his words into our heart. And through the word of God, we can become the kind of people who never fall to the ground. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for what it tells us. Um, I pray today that, that as you were speaking through the pages of scripture, that we were listening. And that all of us in this room can respond as Samuel did by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So that means if somebody in here doesn't know you, that today... Father, they, they, they have trusted in you for what they cannot do. And that they wouldn't leave until they talked to me or Joe or, or a deacon or a friend about what's taking place in their hearts. For the rest of us as believers, Father, we all know what you've called us to do. May it not be said of us that we are educated beyond our obedience. What you've called us to do is very, very simple. May we say yes to what it is that you've called us to do.
And above all, Father, I thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy towards us because I know how stubborn we can be. And just as you called Samuel three times and you showed great mercy and grace, you do the same for us. And I pray that that grace and that mercy be the very thing that leads us to repentance, that your kindness towards us would be the the thing that turns us back to you time and time again. I thank you for this church. I thank you for each and every person that's here. I pray now that we would stand and that we would sing to you for your amazing grace to us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.